and I just learned the best spell of all. What's that? Sleep. Welcome back to My Alchemical Bromance. Uh, my name's Eric Arneson, and I am here with Dan Attrell, who is known online as the Modern Hermeticist. He's got a website called that. Uh, on that website, he's got the Encyclopedia Hermetica, which is this huge collection of uh, podcasts and videos about um, everything. We'll talk about that in a second, probably. He's a PhD student at the University of Waterloo, which is in Ontario, Canada, uh, where he's studying the history of religion, science, and magic. Hi, Dan. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm, I've been looking forward to this because you're... Uh, you have just the right uh, collection of of, uh, of nerd cred in for 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 my liking. Nice. It's always good to accumulate the nerd cred. Yeah. Is there any better cred, really? Uh, I I think it might be the only cred that that counts, right? It, it crosses boundaries and languages and and time. Exactly. <laughs> so you are, uh, or you've just finished, or you're somewhere in the middle of 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 co-translating the Picatrix. Right. So we're done. Um, You're done. It's off to the publisher. Okay. Um, and uh, it's just being proofed right now so that they can kind of like settle on the like what basically sizing up the pages and settling in the, the printing and stuff like that. And then they're sending that back to us and we are going over like a quick final edit of it mm-hmm. and then settling on the page numbers so that we can make an index because Ooh. without an index, a three hundred and seventy odd page book is useless. So, How? so yeah, we're going to do that, and then it'll be released in the first quarter of twenty nineteen. I feel like part of that was a little bit of a dig at the Greer and Warnock translation, which does not have an index. <laughs> oh, well, that's more just uh, you know, it's a dig at like any book really uh, that doesn't yeah. have an index. I agree. Um, I just spent all uh, all week trying to put together this paper on on humanism, and I'm I'm combing through all these books, and most of them have pretty good ind- indices. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you come across one like a thick book, and you're looking for a specific topic, and you know, it kills you. You got to start scanning through every single page looking for the book, and you might as well reread oh, yeah. the entire thing. <laughs> yeah, I've run into that too. So you deal you deal with a lot of old stuff, so you probably go. Th- go through a lot of uh, primary sources. Um, right. When was the index invented? Like when the did index? Yeah. When oh, did books man. start having indexes? Because, you know, you, when you look at stuff in the 18th century, I don't know. I don't know I think that I've come across. began in, in either probably Alexandria um, or if like the modern index, as we understand it, would have begun in the monasteries where it's all about cataloging library books. Huh. Right. So, yeah. you know, you you don't go up and dig up all these manuscripts because they're fragile and you don't want to, like, get your paws all over them. Mm-hmm. So you have everything in an index that's like chained to a wall and you go and find it and crack that open. And then you you go find the monk who's going to find the book for you. And then he goes and gets it for you and he'll chain it to a desk. And right. then you can use that book. <laughs> and that's kind of, I think, probably the earliest uh, uh, yeah, instance of an index that we have, but I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, that I, I was just thinking about that because I actually yesterday was um, coming through some Masonic books from the uh, the early 1700s, and it's just it's it's a pain to find stuff without an index because right. you really do have to pretty much just reread everything. Yep. Um. All right. So, well, you know, having PDFs, searchable PDFs, really helps. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell tell me a little bit about. I'm kind of curious, like with the Picatrix, what primary sort, what what uh, did you translate out of? Did you translate out of Arabic? Uh, did you use a Latin manuscript? Like, what did you have? So, the version that we translated is the same version that in the you've got the Greer and Warnock version in your hand mm-hmm. there. Uh, we both translated from uh, the version put together by a guy named David Pingree, mm-hmm. who everybody in in the uh, occult community should know about because David Pingree is just this like titan of learning and like brought so much information from uh, especially Indian like Vedic astrology mm-hmm. uh, to the attention of the West and so um, he he was like a, a classic like orientalist in in 
you know, in the scholarly sense of the word and um, that did great work. So the, he cobbled together all of the manuscripts that were floating around Europe in various editions um, and then created a critical edition. Okay. Um, and so there's like numerous manuscripts and like the, the apparatus criticus outlines all the various traditions that went into making that version. Mm -hmm. But that's been kind of the standard edition in Latin that all the scholars refer to. And that version has nothing to do with the Arabic version. Like it was translated from Arabic mm -hmm. and then it was translated into, into Castilian Spanish and then from Castilian Spanish into Latin. And then in its Latin form, it circulated in Europe at Montpellier um, and like Krakow University uh -huh. and these other universities all around um, Europe. And, and, but they, the people who were reading this had no knowledge of the Gayat al-Hakim, which mm -hmm. is the Arabic version. And so we actually, when we were translating it, we, we made a conscious effort not to try to force that system to a close. We wanted to, keep those two traditions as variant traditions. There is one tradition, the Picatrix, which has influenced Europe. Right. And then there is the Gayat al-Hakim, which is another tradition altogether. And there are other scholars like uh, Dr. Liana Seif who are working on that version. And, you know, I, oh, we have no competence in Arabic, so we're not the right people to be mm -hmm. looking at, at that version. Um, so... Do you think that there's going to be a uh, translation of the of the Gaia Al Hakim? Is that what you're calling yes. it? Do you yes. think there's going to be an English translation of that available one of these days? Yeah. So Liana Seif is working on that edition. There actually is a. I think it's like book one and two. So there's four mm -hmm. books in the Pegatrix, and I'm pretty sure if it's not book one and two, it's just book one. Somebody has done a translation from the Arabic, and I've like very briefly looked at it because mm -hmm. I didn't want to like contaminate my vision of what the Latin says with what the original air, like I didn't want to like color it. Yeah. I wanted to come at it clean like somebody who would have been like a, 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 a I don't know, a, a scholar of magic or theology would have come to it from a European perspective. Um, so yeah, we we have no idea. Um, the the like the, uh, another tradition that we have is is the um, we have a German edition, uh huh, and uh, that's by uh, Ritter and Plesner, and they um, they worked from the Arabic version. So there's a lot of people who they work from. Uh, the Latin version, and then they're also cross-referencing it with the with the German version, which is a translation of the Arabic. Mm -hmm. And so you're getting kind of like a stream of information from a separate tradition. And like you know, that's fine. It's just a, it's it's all a matter of how you outline your methodology at the beginning of the book. Um, like, what is your intention, and are you clear about? Um, what edition you are passing on because technically there is no 400 page version of the Picatrix that ever floated around. It was always in like manuscript versions. Some were truncated somewhere fragmentary, mm -hmm. some were full like the Krakow manuscript is pretty thorough. Um, and then our modern versions are kind of like cobbled together versions of all of those. What, uh, so in going through the Picatrix, um, so you find a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff in there definitely influenced um, some of the more famous Renaissance magicians. You know, you can see like Agrippa definitely got stuff out of the Picatrix. Absolutely. Um, and I think I heard you mention in another podcast that maybe John D had a copy of the Picatrix too. Oh yeah. He, he, he probably had one. Um, the thing is that he actually inherited a library. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was the St. Andrew's library. Uh, I have this written down somewhere, but I'm not going to dig it up right now. Mm -hmm. But he, he inherited uh, the largest library in England, basically, uh, because during the you know English Reformation, all the monasteries got shut down mm -hmm. um, by mandate of King Henry VIII. And uh, so basically all of their wealth, all of their riches, including their libraries were just plundered and they were sold off wholesale. And so John Dee acquired one of these 
basically the largest library in England. And there are copies of like the Liber Wakai, um, the Book of the Cow, uh, or um, I think this, the Secret of Secrets is another one that is a hermetic book that has Hermes Trismegistus giving aphorisms in it. Mm-hmm. And so um, I don't actually have proof that he distinctly had a Picatrix, but it really wouldn't surprise me. And also the Picatrix fits squarely within that worldview that John Dee and Edward Kelly uh, were living out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So tell me some stuff. I want I want to hear like some cool Picatrix anecdotes. Like I've I've read the the Greer Warnock one and um I was actually really surprised by some of the content of the Picatrix, but as a translator, you must have come across some things where you were translating it and you're like this can't be right or or what the heck is actually being said in here? Like give me some what are some uh, juicy Picatrix bits that that sort of threw you for a loop when you were reading through it? Oh, I mean, there's so much to talk about because, like I said, it was an eight-year project. So, mm-hmm. um, so, so it took six years for the uh, the actual compiler. Um, so here's the thing: actually, there was a lot of controversy around who actually put together this book. Oh. Um, so everybody, since the Ritter Plesner edition, thought it was this guy named Al Majriti, and then they weren't so sure about that, so they switched over to pseudo al Majriti. <laughs> and then so then you have like so it's not al Majriti and it's not pseudo al Majriti. so who is it well um we have good reason to believe that is a guy named maslama al kurtubi and al kurtubi that name is really familiar i wonder right but it, i'm sure if you were to google al kurtubi uh-huh. you would not get that Al Kurtubi. Oh, <laughs> right. Because it's like it's like if you were to search Smith. Yeah. And then you and then you were like, oh, man, this Smith guy, he doesn't sound like he's got anything to do with ritual magic. It's just because <laughs> he's like a, a totally different guy. So mm-hmm. the um, I'll get his dates. The Al Kurtubi that I'm talking about, uh-huh. um, he is he died in the 10th century. Um, and I think it's around nine, yeah, nine sixty four is his death date. And he was he was described by his contemporaries as a man of charms and talismans. Ooh. And um, and so he was likely. So what we're seeing is that like the Picatrix was written uh, a long time before it was translated mm-hmm. into Spanish. And then, um, but it was still done in Spain. Right. So that was something wait, that wait, like, wait. so the, so Al Cortubi was in, in Spain. Yeah. He was an Andalusian polymath. So that's interesting. I guess, uh, the impression that I got from the Picatrix or at least from the, like, I guess some part of me wanted to connect it to like the, the Haranian pagans or something. Yes. That and that connection is there. And how? Um, how? What is that connection then? If if so, it's really complicated. Um, uh, but I'll 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 basically I'll lay it out kind of simply. Um, so the Picatrix is written in Andalusian Spain, which is you know Islamic, mm-hmm. and uh, it is drawing on a, a wealth of Arabic literature. Mm-hmm. Or Greek works that were translated into Arabic or uh, Syriac or Babylonian or like all ma- manner of texts were somehow found their way into the Arabic. So the Picatrix is cobbled up. Uh, I think it's 224 books. The author tells us <laughs> that went into the making of the Picatrix. And so the, each of those 224 works have their own separate traditions there, there is one of those traditions. One of those veins is uh, the Sabaeans of Haran, who are mm-hmm. in an area of eastern Turkey. And now it's weird because in the Quran there is a uh, there are provisions for protection for uh, Jews and Christians, basically, basically people of the book, people who have received revelation mm-hmm. uh, before. Islam and 
and so uh, Islam was meant for the Arabic people. Judaism is meant for Jews. Christianity is meant for the Christian world. But there was another category, and it was the Sabaeans. Mm -hmm. And these were the star worshipers of the Arabian Peninsula. Peninsula. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't know really who these people are. But when the Arabs start conquering outward uh, into pagan lands, mm -hmm. these people start reading these texts and they say, wait, hold up. We are, we are these Sabians who you claim, uh, are protected. Mm -hmm. We are the star worshipers. So then you get this like new category of people who call themselves Sabians in Haran in Eastern Turkey, but they're not necessarily the Sabians who were in the Arab peninsula. They're just like, using that as a title right to protect themselves and those people uh practice basically um babylonian astrology mm -hmm. and uh sacrificial ritual magic as i mean we wouldn't call it magic we would just call it religion and it's only by uh being a stranger to islam that this becomes magic so you're taking Babylonian paganism and you're importing it into Islam to Spain. And, and the people who are reading about this, they, they see this as, as magic, okay. um, as nigromancia. That's the word that they use mm -hmm. in the, in the Latin. Um, I, again, I don't know what the Arabic word is, but, but ritual magic or ceremonial magic. Um, some people like to call it necromancy. I don't like that term because of modern baggage mm -hmm. yeah you know like you read lord of the rings and when tolkien is talking about a necromancer he's not talking about like undead wizards who summon skeletons he's talking about just a magician whereas nowadays with video games and popular culture and stuff you say necromancer and then everybody thinks like oh yeah he's, uh, he's got he's got zombies <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and so like i'm trying to dis distance myself from that by mm -hmm. translating nigromancia as uh ceremonial magic yeah or ritual magic that makes sense so one of one of the things that um that struck me about the uh the picatrix is that when it comes to the part where it's talking about like they have all these uh recipes for incense mm -hmm. and the quantities that you're producing are enormous like you're, you're not yes. making like a personal amount you're making you're making enough incense for like a whole village of people. Right. And that's the thing. It's, it's a, it's a huge quantity. It's like 20 ounces of opium or hashish or whatever mixed mm -hmm. in with like a bunch of other biting agents and such. And then you're, you're using that in, an, not always, but often in an enclosed space. And, um, you're definitely going to get effects <laughs> from that. Um, I guess and the impression I had was that maybe it was such a large quantity because some of the Picatrix stuff was, was intended for like a temple or like temple worship stuff instead of just individual practice. I mean, that's very possible. Yeah. Uh, there, that, that is kind of like, there is a, an element of these are, there's a recognition, uh, that these are ancient religious practices of pagans and that like, yes, now we worship Islam. Now we follow the law, but before the law was passed, this is what the wise men of every civilization practiced. And it was sacrifice. It was suffumigation. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, costumes and, and, you know, the whole sympathetic magic worldview. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, they, they very much tap into, uh, various traditions, but I think there is kind of an overarching tradition, which has come to being be called Platonic Orientalism, and Platonic that's just the, Orientalism. Yeah, it's just the idea that like the East is somehow more mystical than whatever it is you're practicing. Mm -hmm. So you couch everything that you do in in Eastern baggage, uh, because like. So it's, it's, uh, you know, like in the Bible, a prophet is never welcome in his own town. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like a magician is never welcome in his own town because he's just practicing his, his mom and dad's religion. He needs to go and pretend to be practicing Haranian or Hindu or Babylonian or Amazonian shamanism or whatever it is mm -hmm. in order to enhance their, uh, 
I guess, mystical aura. And oh yeah, the, yeah, I see what you're saying. Right. Yeah. So like you were you, you're you're a Freemason, right? Mm-hmm. I am. Freemason as an organization is like founded on this conception of platonic orientalism like it is just like in- deeply encrusted and encoded with um like oh, yeah. a veneration of the east like what is it uh ex oriente lux mm-hmm. yeah but so. it's a, and it's also just like stealing you know the whole thing is based around uh you know the temple of solomon and right and sort of yeah the, and Zoro- the mis- zoroastrianism behind mm-hmm. that yeah so yeah and these so that's kind of what that is is a, a historiographical tradition it's kind of like you can see even starting from Herodotus and onward that like in the so-called West, we have people who try to like project themselves outward in order to, um, uh, to satisfy that kind of like urge for uh, mysticism, uh, the, the kind of exotic elements that, that are uh, unveiled by magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay, sorry. I, something on my computer was making noise again. <laughs> All right. Um, so then, do you think that there's a connection? So you were saying, like, so the, the Picatrix stuff is maybe has roots in Babylonian astrology and that sort of stuff. And everything. Well, that's the thing yeah. is that it's like, it's got a Nabataean strain. It's got a Haranian strain. It's got a Greek strain. It's got an Indian strain and it's mm-hmm. very con and an Egyptian strain. And it's very conscious, uh, in, in what way it inherited different things from different traditions. So like they're like from India, we received like suffumigation and mantra. It, it, they call them just magical words, mm-hmm. but we would call them mantra nowadays. Um, or from, uh, Babylon is where we got the science of the stars, whereas from the Greeks we got the science of like mathematics. Mm-hmm. And, and and the idea is like you are kind of collecting and gathering all of this knowledge from all of the corners of the earth, and you are reconciling and and marrying them together. And once you've created this kind of heap of knowledge, you can stand on top of it, and from there you can do magic. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's like the goal of the sage. It's it's you reach the highest degree of perfection in your knowledge, and then you are privy to the secrets of the universe. That's their worldview. I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. Whereas, like we have no center, and we're kind of just drifting around, and and you know there there is truth, surely, but like there is no ultimate narrative of what is true that we can just you know digest in an evening mm-hmm. or put into a 400 page book (laughs) yeah maybe a math book (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) so um all right so then the picatrix uh it entered europe in the in medieval times or somewhere around there uh in 13th century 13th century latin translations where do we see it pop up in europe like are there some interesting people like we already mentioned agrippa and maybe possibly d but but who else was reading the picatrix where where did who who else um got influenced by it like what other well marsilio ficino is probably the biggest name really can you tell me how do we know that um, I don't have the exact reference and I will bust ass to find it and I will let everybody know. Uh-huh. But it's like if you go in his three books on life, mm-hmm. um, there are like sections in the section that's like on how to cure depression. Mm-hmm. He's talking about like, well, he's talking about the Saturnine nature of the scholar and how like scholars tend to uh, have to do certain things to, you know, fight back the melancholy. Uh-huh. And and in there, there are talismans and recipes. And um, if I'm not mistaken, some of those recipes are taken from Picatrix. And I, again, I will have to confirm that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's like the language that Ficino uses and the style of the magic that he's describing is, is pretty much 100% that uh, worldview. So even if he's not reading the Picatrix, he's tapped into this Renaissance magus. Um, you know, I don't want to say that the archetype precedes the existence of these people, but um, that, that 
what we understand as Western esotericism, um, he is practicing that in its kind of uh, original form, the form that the Golden Dawn would eventually be interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, sympathetic magic, resonances, planetary magic, uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, oh, and and also Kabbalah, obviously. Mm-hmm. That's the, the, the Pico della Mirandola uh, uh, angle to it. Right. So, um, yeah, and, and I think Pico as well uh, probably had uh, access to the Picatrix as well. Uh, Saint-Faurien de Champier Oops. is the name. I've never heard that name before. Um, he's he's a French humanist. Okay. And I think he's probably close related to, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Who wrote Pantagruel? Uh, Oh, uh, shit. Why is it not coming to me? (laughs) Rabelais. Yeah. Rabelais. Yeah, exactly. Who, because Rabelais quotes Picatrix. What? In, in Pantagruel. He doesn't quote it. He 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 says um, that it's like some demonic book, or he, he it's. I think the quote is uh, the Reverend. I, I actually can pull it up here just so uh-huh. I'm not uh, misquoting him. I can I Let's can edit see. this so it looks like you've got it right on the tip of your tongue. <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, so here it is. Uh, the widespread infamy of this textbook throughout Western Europe is attested by the fact that Francois Rabelais in one of his novels, harangued against a certain Picatrice, mm-hmm. a, quote, reverend father in the devil and a rector of the diabolical faculty. <laughs> so Awesome. <laughs> so, like, this is... Uh, Rabelais' time is, like, peak time for this stuff to be circulating around in circles. Um, uh, so, Agostino Nifo, for example, called the Picatrix uh, the most the foremost among the Magi mm-hmm. and, and then other people condemned it as, um, you know, Picatrix was a Spanish charlatan who wrote about magic. And so, so they thought Picatrix was a person, which he was. Uh, so this is where it gets complicated. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. And, and, and all of this is actually laid out in the introduction of our book when it comes out, but I can, I can give kind of a, a crash course on it here. The guy who wrote its name was Maslama al Qurtubi, right? Okay. So Maslama was the the part of the name that when it entered into Spanish, somebody thought, how am I going to translate the name Maslama in Arabic into phonetic Spanish? Mm-hmm. We're not. We're just going to give him a code name. So in Arabic, the mm-hmm. stem um, for like, uh, um, or I guess it's S L M backwards mm-hmm. means to bite or to sting. And so, okay. In Spanish, picar means to bite or to sting, kind of like a snake. And the idea is like, you know how the serpent's wisdom, uh-huh. it, you get bit by a serpent and it gives you its wisdom. Um, th- so it was this notion and, uh, and then picar became picat well it would be picator or whatever uh-huh. and then that and that became picatrix and that's the <laughs> name that he went through europe as as the picatrix which means the goader or the biter or the stinger and the idea is i think a serpent that who, is nuts. who bites you with wisdom that is cool i that, i had not heard that before at all that is that is bizarre <laughs> Huh. You know what the weird part is, is that like, so remember how I said that everybody used to think that it was written by a guy named Al-Majridi. Mm-hmm. Well, Al-Majridi's name is also Maslama Al-Majridi. So the pun would have worked for both of these guys. <laughs> so it's like, it took me forever to try to untangle all this stuff. And then finally, you know, once once you see it clearly, it's, it's easy. But mm-hmm. yeah, um, that that was one of the things I think a major kind of breakthrough for me was just finding out who wrote this thing. Did you find anything else out about, uh, Al, 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 Al Kortubi, Al Kortubi. Did you find any, you know, I mean, do, what do we know about him as an individual? Like did, did, did he, have very a, little. Oh, okay. Well, 
I mean, what we would know, see that there's a problem because it's like what I know about him mm -hmm. is I know the text that he wrote, the Picatrix, right? So mm -hmm. I, I know it's like valuable to him, what he thinks is important, what like, uh, what kind of what his worldview was in a way, but I, I know that secondhand through an, a Latin translation. I can't read the Arabic mm -hmm. and what he wrote. Um, and we, we don't have any other of his works. So, um, our knowledge about him is, is fairly scant, but you know, the, the book is, is so big and, you know, mm -hmm. when somebody gives you 224 books of theirs, like imagine you inherit some, I, I've inherited somebody's library. I, there was a, I had a landlord and her husband was like a rapist or something and went to jail and he was like a university professor uh -huh. and I inherited his library and he had just like a ton of like, like a ton, all the Nietzsche, like, uh, oh. and like just ton of like Wittgenstein and like just uh -huh. great philosophy stuff. So it was really unfortunate that he turned out to be a shitty person, but, um, I got to know him through a bit of his book collection right. and like, this is this is your echo chamber. These are the ideas rattling around your head. So Picatrix is a bit like that where, I'm like, okay, this is these are two hundred and twenty four books that you've compiled. Mm -hmm. So like I know what you think is in important and um that's that's kind of my window into his life. Beyond that, there's there's not much that I can know. Um maybe some uh Islamic scholars or Arabic scholars would be in a much better position to do that kind of research. Well, I think from the amount of animal sacrifice that he included in the Picatrix, we can be sure oh, yeah. that he was not a vegan. No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, all right. So, so the Picatrix ended up uh, influencing a lot of people uh, in the Renaissance. Um, and then it, it kind of just dropped off the face of the earth or people stopped paying attention to it for a while. Right. Like uh, when did people stop? Stop looking at it. Did the Golden Dawn use the Picatrix at all? I don't think there's any Picatrix stuff in the Golden nope. Dawn, except maybe nope, there was no version of it. Yeah, I guess they probably so had there some was... secondary stuff like through Agrippa or, or something like that. But well, they had like the Lesser Key of Solomon and all that kind of stuff, which mm -hmm. is later, right? But so that stuff is later, and it is in. And I mean, there's a lot of those books, mm -hmm. but they are definitely in the vein that Picatrix began in the west yeah um so uh you know picatrix isn't the only book but it's one of the major ones and it's one of the the so like francis yates writes a, a lot about picatrix in her giordano bruno and the hermetic tradition mm -hmm. and um i was also looking at uh walter hanegraaf's um criticisms of yates and how she sees this kind of hermetic tradition where there n may necessarily not be one. Mm -hmm. um, but, and, and one of the ways he does this is by looking at her footnotes and he says, look, you cite like the Corpus Hermeticum, you, you cite the Asclepius mm -hmm. uh, like 30 times, whereas mm -hmm. you don't cite very many other works from it. Mm -hmm. So to what extent is this really inspired by hermeticism? But, I checked his index and uh, and just looking through all of his stuff, and I don't see any mention of the Picatrix, and that is arguably one of these ur hermetic texts because right. Hermes Trismegistus he appears numerous numerous times in this book, and like there are all sorts of he's one of many sages, mm -hmm. um, but I think that 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 uh, it doesn't undercut his argument, but I think he could strengthen his argument by. Um, adding in a discussion about the Picatrix and and how um, that also kind of was another vein other than Ficino's translation of the Corpus Hermeticum mm -hmm. uh, into this kind of hermetic revival, if you want to call it that. Um, which um, which uh, Hanegraaff um, book was that? Was that in... When uh, esotericism and the Academy is is the one oh, okay. where he talks about a lot of this stuff. I have a book that's critical of Yeats that's called Francis Yeats uh, and the Hermetic Tradition. Oh, okay. Have you I seen mean, that everybody one? is... No, I haven't, but everybody's critical of Yeats and it's fair to be critical of Yeats mm -hmm. um, because she was... 
basically like she found what she was looking for right she yeah. she had in mind what she wanted to find before she went looking and then she kind of like cherry picked to build that narrative and so um it's like she she did a lot of great in the sense that she connected magic and science and those two kind of scholarly worlds and she got people looking into magic seriously mm-hmm. and and like treating uh, a scholarship about magic like seriously and that it wasn't just like you know some some fancy it was a it was a legitimate object of hi- historical inquiry and that's where i think her greatest um contribution is but when it comes to like actually hashing out the details i think people are getting pretty good at going to the sources and and um there's just like there's like a critical mass of information that we've reached and Mm -hmm. it's it's too hard to 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 create these kind of linear uh narratives you you got to branch out into like it's there you know trees that branch off in all directions that's Mm -hmm. how you have to think about it instead of a a line that goes from, you know, magic to science. Right. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, there is kind of a, yeah. Cause it, there's, there's no one single thread that runs through all of it. There's so many different, uh, there's so many different passages and connections. It's kind of hard to put it all together. Right. And that's kind of the fun of it though. Like mm-hmm. is parsing it all. All right. So the Picatrix, Let's let's go back in time a little bit, like before the Picatrix. Yep. So the Picatrix was compiled in the ninth century. Uh, yeah, tenth century. Tenth century, and that's uh, pretty close to the same time as like uh, I think like the the Sworn Book of Honorius was around there. Or was that a couple? Yes. Yeah, and then um, well, that's later, but but it fits into that tradition and the idea that like mm-hmm. you know there are hope is uh, is a, a necromancer <laughs> right <laughs> what about uh what about the uh Higramantia? i haven't actually read that one yet um but is that older than the picatrix do you know i'm i'm unfamiliar with that title. okay well me i've i've just recently started seeing people mention it so it's it's on my list of things to to look up and read but cool what and then but uh so the Picatrix draws together all of these disparate sources or like all of these different um, influences. Do you think it has a pretty direct connection to some of the like Greek magical papyri stuff? Oh, definitely. Uh, it, it is that like, mm-hmm. it might not be that those very recipes mm-hmm. um, practiced by that particular magus, I think in Egypt in what the third century AD mm-hmm. Um maybe second century but it it definitely taps into most of all the uh neoplatonic and kind of uh hellenic uh or hellenization of egyptian magic mm-hmm. it, that's kind of it's it's bread and butter and that's kind of what i mean also when i say platonic orientalism is this kind of uh uh retro projection of greek philosophy through an aesthetic lens of egyptian culture and society and then that becomes in and of itself a a kind of like a real experience of egyptian of what you perceive to be egyptian religion but is actually like a modern or not modern a contemporary to the third and fourth century Mm -hmm. construction right Um, right all these philosophies, all these like debates coming together, mystery cults from all the four corners of the earth, like everybody in a giant mixing pool, Jews, Christians, mm-hmm. um, everybody contributing all these ideas and, and trying to hash them out. Like mm-hmm. that's the, the bread and butter of the worldview that feeds into the Picatrix and the Arabs inherit that, right? Because mm-hmm. they, they take Egypt and they, uh, they take Spain as well, where there's like a huge wealth of, um, like when Toledo falls, mm-hmm. that's just like, there's so much wealth and, and knowledge that falls from the Muslims back into Christian. Well, when you say back into it complicates the picture, we'll just yeah. say it goes from Muslim to Christian hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's easier. Um, yeah. so then what, what, do you, <laughs> what, what other sort of, uh, sources or, or do we, do we, have we, rec- have, have you guys managed to identify any other sources for the Picatrix? Like what? 
he names them. So there's oh, just he like, does? yeah, when you're reading it, you just like, oh. he, he's like, I found in a book by a certain guy named blah, blah, blah in his book called, hmm, and then it's italicized. And then, oh, yeah, I guess he'll just in, drop citations. Yeah, like in book four, he's got like, here's a list of spells that I got from blah, blah, blah. Uh, oh, yeah. Found in a book that was discovered in the church of Coradib. Chamber of Queen. Oh, yeah, of yeah. Cordoba, right. And uh, Queen... In the book of Fulo... Queen Cleopatra. Is it Cleopatra? It says Pedre in this... Oh, oh no, that's a, a, a Spanish queen. Oh, okay. And so this is like a later amendment or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I loved... It's just like, the spells are just sometimes so weird. Yeah. Here's one. Some of them are just truly bizarre. <laughs> to gather mice in one place. <laughs> to catch birds sleeping in trees. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah well and that so that's like interesting because it's like you can reconstruct people's kind of like world view or like what their day-to-day life was mm-hmm. by figuring out what the things that they couldn't achieve through regular means were so like you'll find that a huge quantity of the spells are dedicated to pests oh yeah insects but bed bugs bugs in your wine um getting rid of rats or or even using pests as enemies like inflicting snake bites on your enemies or one another one was uh to to summon a green tarantula that'll bite people (laughs) oh yeah but and that's actually like a, a one of those weird things where you're like is this like golem construction? Like, mm-hmm. what what are you talking about when you're bringing things to life? Are you imitating nature or are you recreating nature? So, are you are you playing God in in their worldview? Are you playing God or are you um, just um, kind of emulating him? And there was a lot of anxiety, especially around the practice of alchemy mm-hmm. in in the 13th century, as to whether you were. Uh, playing God by perfecting nature, by turning you know crap into gold, uh, mm-hmm. among other things, or were you uh, simply, you know, doing an art that that improved nature, but that didn't necessarily like perfect it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, like the the golem thing itself, you know, uh, Arya Coplin interprets the golem as a mental construct as like a, an imaginal uh, form of life instead of like an actual, like walking around form, um, which I think is, is pretty interesting. And, you know, through that lens, you can view all sorts of some of the, you know, the old, you know, the old books of magic. Um, you've, you've probably read uh, Yuan Culiano. I don't know if I say his name, right. I can't speak Italian. Uh, I don't think I have. Uh, he wrote uh, Eros and Magic in the Renaissance. No, but I should put that on my list if yeah. it's not already on my list. I would love to hear your thoughts about that book. I, that book uh, completely like changed my the way that I looked at like Renaissance magic and, and all the old magic stuff. It was just sort of like, oh, crap, I didn't realize. You know, a lot of it is about sort of uh, uh, dissecting and putting back together like the way uh, – the way that the Renaissance worldview worked. So like the way people thought before, and he sort of, he sort of pins a lot of blame for the loss of that kind of thought on um, the reformation and counter reformation. And yeah, nominalism especially is the philosophy that destroyed the magical worldview. Nominalism. What's nominalism? So nominalism is is the belief and it is the okay so the first non-nominalist position that was ever expressed mm-hmm. in the world's history was plato's worldview so oh. plato was the first idealist okay so idealism in the middle ages became realism so mm-hmm. like the idealist the idealism of plato became the realism of the middle ages and nominalism were the first people to look at that and go oh wait there are no general universal things like there is no humanity that's mm-hmm. the traditional example there are individual humans and when we say humanity we aren't actually like reaching into some platonic form and touching the like true archetype of mankind that such a thing doesn't exist. What there is, is just many individual humans. And we're using words, nomen, mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to map reality. And so now that 
that was like a, a pretty revolutionary thing within scholasticism, within the medieval debate system. But what happened was Martin Luther was one of these people, right? Mm-hmm. And so what he did was he took nominalism and and started applying that to things like the Eucharist. And once the signifier and the signified, so the thing that is uh, symbolized and, and, and the symbol itself, or, or rather the, the symbol itself and the thing symbolized, mm-hmm. once that was cut apart and separated, um, it created like a cascade where it just crumbled apart the magical worldview of medieval Catholicism with the cult of the saints, with mm-hmm. image veneration, with um, it, 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 everything was linked uh, in the mind in, in these magical categories. And nominalism said, no, actually, like, you're not eating Jesus. You're eating a symbol <laughs> of Jesus. And then they go, oh, shit. Like, and so it's like, no, you're not like, that's not the map is not the territory is mm-hmm. uh, Alfred Korczybski said that. And, um, that's basically the nominalist premise. And in religion, it, there was a critical mass of belief with Catholicism. So, you know, everybody believed in it and it was just kind of, that was reality. Um, all of the, the worldview of, of, of medieval Catholicism became reality. And then somebody came along and said, well, actually, um, you know, these, these terms that you're talking about, like truth or love or whatever, like they aren't actually abstracts. They're things that are particular cases. So you, you have particular instances of love. You don't really have like er love. You just have individual loves. Hmm. And, and, and that, um, that sort of extended to all, all aspects of society. And it, it fundamentally destroyed the magical worldview and it's part, it it is part of triggering the scientific revolution um, of Mm -hmm. of people seeing clearly. So, but there's two sides to it, right? So like, there's the side that's like, I want to live in Aboriginal dream time, European Aboriginal dream time, if you will, Mm -hmm. Um, which was medieval Catholicism, you know, it was brutal and dirty and nasty and and all that, but it Mm -hmm. it, it was still like you had a sense of belonging and community and everything was, uh, based on, um, you know, communal ties and bonds. And, and once Protestantism, uh, kind of erodes away at that, it, it, it really gives birth again to the individual. And, um, you get ideas like the Protestant work ethic and we could, talk about whether that's real or not or whether it's real or not it sure has shaped a lot of society (laughs) exactly and that was max faber's idea was that we protestants created what's called an iron cage oh yeah and the iron cage like we shed the religious baggage but we maintained the structure of you know, self-discipline. You've always got any time that you aren't working, mm-hmm. that's money wasted that Ugh. you could be saving up because if you're saving that money, then you've got like compound interest and then you're making more money. So mm-hmm. then they, like you should always be working, but not spending it because that's blasphemy and you don't want to spend too much money because <laughs> you'll, you'll be polluted by luxury or whatever. Yeah. Uh. So we are, we are shaped by those people's thinking um but largely devoid of you know the religious component which is very alien to us mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's, uh, max weber's thought i thought uh, shoehorned in really nicely with uh, culiano like <laughs> culiano uh, talks about um the reformation and you know i he, i don't think he uses the word nominalism i think he uh pins a lot of it on um uh, or he, he, he seems to interpret Luther's um, attack on, uh, you know, images in the cult of saints as purely sort of this ideological anti-Catholic thing. Um, and then he says that, you know, the, the, the tradition sort of continued, you know, the Counter-Reformation cracked down on 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 the cult of saints and images and, and uh, iconography right. in the church. Um to the point where he, I, I can't remember his exact words, but he calls it something like uh, the 
the institutional murder of the imagination or something like that. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's why yeah. I call it the death of a European dream time. Yeah. It, which is I, I sad. I haven't heard anybody else use that, but it, I feel, it is. And I feel like we should totally, we should tweet that the death of European dream time. Yeah. But then you, you are you familiar with monarchist Twitter? Like they're out there, like people who want that, but they're usually pretty like hardcore right wingers who want to bring back monarchy and oh. <laughs> like cru- the crusader spirit i don't and, like you know i don't want those they larp as crusaders on like right so there you go <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe it's okay for european dream time to stay dead but maybe we need a new dream time yeah i just think we need to remember that there was such a thing and that you actually like can like get lost in those things oh, and yeah. that um and like uh, especially in today's discourse about colonialism and things like that mm-hmm. um people always like to think that you know europeans figured out science and then all of a sudden they were in the four corners of the earth just like ruining everybody's traditional cultures but it, the fact is like europe destroyed its own traditional worldview from within before it started spreading that elsewhere so it's like it, it you know nobody was spared from yeah. the ravages of nominalism science industrialization capitalism etc <laughs> i mean in a way europe destroyed its own traditional culture uh like two or three times since we've had yes. recorded history like it's we, we're just yeah europe just loves to eat itself <laughs> yep man there's there's a whole graveyard of um of dream dream times out there somewhere Yep. In, and that's kind in, of in a more ideal world. <laughs> yeah. But that's, that's for me, that's the, the essence of it, right? Like mm-hmm. my fascination, my interest in all of this is like, I want to try to see what it would be like to be in those dream times. Um, yeah. So like, uh, I, I, and so I look at like various religions as these provisional models that I kind of surf through, but I try to understand them on their own terms. Um, because if you try to bring to bear too many modern concepts on like the ancient world, it starts to distort mm-hmm. the vision that you're having and you, you end up rep- retro projecting all this modern baggage. So, you know, you try to do it historically and see things from the, from their own perspectives as much as possible. Cause mm-hmm. obviously you can't totally. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think that's the essence of scholarship is just kind of trying to get clear vision and, mm-hmm. and, um, um, see things as clearly as possible and always be, you know, willing to, uh, re, um, you know, reconceptualize how you think about these various models. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. So I don't know if you're comfortable answering this sort of question. Have you ever performed a ritual out of the Picatrix or have you ever performed any Picatrix operations? <laughs> uh, no. Um, I mean, I have some funny stories about this. Uh, <laughs> n- no. Yes. No. Like to me, I think like I, 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 I think that very few people actually ever do magic correctly right because it's like picatrix mm-hmm. is like you have you can't just like open a book and then like point your finger to like i'm gonna do this one yeah and then do it you actually have to read the entire book and understand the entire system mm-hmm. in order to do it properly because there are like there's there might be a line in the second book somewhere in like paragraph 32 which is like an important maxim that governs everything else in the book. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or it'll be like, Um, you know, there, there'll be some sort of astrological warning. It's like, Oh yeah. And by the way, if these two things are happening in the sky, nothing else is going to work. Exactly. And so it's like, I don't actually have the like capacity or wherewithal. Also like our systems are incommensurable, incommensurable. Like I don't, view the world from a Copernic or, or from a, from a Ptolemaic or Ar- Aristotelian worldview. Mm-hmm. Like, and that, and, and much of the magic that's in the Picatrix hinges on understanding the world in this worldview mm-hmm. where this, you know, the earth is at the center and there are like concentric rings of crystalline spheres, which, which, you know, have star power like emanating down from from the Empyrean and they're being shaped and altered by various planet like configurations of the stars and planets. Yeah. I don't see the world that way, right? Like mm-hmm. I am a scientific thinker 
I, you know, for me, the decentralization of, of the, you know, earth, uh, happened in 1600 with Giordano Bruno. Mm-hmm. Like it, so for, for me, I don't have the, the belief or the, you know, that kind of rigor in order to like convince myself that that's the way that the world works in order for the magic to work in the way that it ought to work. Mm-hmm. I would have to do all sorts of adaptations. And then where does that end? Right. Like, right. Okay. Well, there are seven planets here. Well, now we know that like those are two luminaries and that there are more planets. So I'm going <laughs> to add Pluto and Neptune and, and Uranus. And, uh, and then I'm going to like, Oh, well, I know about like certain adjustments in the Gregorian calendar. So I'm going to have to modulate for those. And then, Oh, there are certain adjustments that I have to make in terms of like the parallax of oh, like, yeah. phenomenon that, that were never known in the middle ages. That, mm-hmm. And so it's like, I'm not going to do all that. What I would rather do <laughs> is like learn that worldview and try to like understand it, but not necessarily um, practice it or because I have my own, uh, you know, my own kind of spiritual worldview that, that is incommensurable with that one. But mm-hmm. I, I, I will still like try as hard as I can to understand it as a historian um, so that I can do an accurate translation and capture the meaning. Right. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of people, when they look at a translation, they might say like, Oh, it's not literal or it's not like, like word for word the same. And I'm like, if you did that, it would come out as crap. Like it would come out as like garbled, meaningless stuff. You have to interpret what you're, you have to like translate it and then be like, okay, what does this mean? Mm -hmm. And then if it, if you cannot tap into the meaning because it's, you're so far gone in your worldview, that's fine. You just leave it as it is. Mm -hmm. But most cases you can make an informed decision about how you ought to order something in order to, um, uh, uh, uncover the meaning of what the author actually meant. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I haven't, uh, done any rituals from it for fear that I would immediately mess them up. <laughs> um, and then also, um, there, I, I have some, f- like a funny story. There was, uh, I won't name names. Um, when, in 2012, no 2013. Yeah. 2012. I was finishing, uh, my MA at Waterloo and um, getting ready to go to uh, California for, for uh, two years. And mm-hmm. I was at UCLA there. Um, and so w- basically my position as co-translator were, was being relieved and they were looking for somebody else who could take on the job because in the way that the university works with funding, they can't just keep funding the same person over and over again. Uh-huh. They have to like spread it out to give as much funding to as many Uh, masters or PhD students as they can. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to give this translation work to this woman and um, she, you know, she was down. And then once she sat down and opened it and started learning about it Mm -hmm. immediately was totally freaked out and said, I don't want anything to do with this project. I don't want my name associated (laughs) with this. I don't want any affiliation. This is satanic magic. And I just like, and so she was clearly like a, like a fundamentalist mm-hmm. Christian who who really took issue with even being associated with any work of, you know, quote unquote demonology. Oh, um, <laughs> right. because that's, that's kinda, what it is. Yeah, it's just totally. Like, what, what do you define demons as? Right, mm-hmm. like they're planets. Demons are planets. <laughs> yeah, and exactly, and and that's the thing. It's it's pretty unambiguous in the Picatrix that you know, when you're summoning these things, you are summoning the spirits of planets and so like planets have various spirits and you are invoking one or another of Mm -hmm. the spirit of jupiter Mm -hmm. and and then getting them to do that work for you um but it's yeah it's funny to to know that there are people who like turn down the project just because of magic paranoia (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome so uh how in your best estimate how many more months do we have to wait before this new picatrix is out before your translation is out by contract it is due out um in the in the first quarter of uh 2019 and it is in the publisher's best interest and they know this to publish before um 
there's an international medieval Congress that I go to every year. I'm mm-hmm. actually going to it this year in May in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Oh, that sounds exciting. And it's super great. Like I go every year. It's rad. I give a talk. Wait, um, tell me that everybody shows up in like Ren Faire clothing to this too. No, actually. Damn. And I, I get this every time I cross the border. Uh-huh. There's always some smart ass border guard. Who's like, where are you guys going? And I'm just like, we're going to a medieval conference. And he's just like, you got any axes or maces? <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's like a scholarly conference. He's like, what about chain mail? You got any chain mail? And I'm just like, no, we're just like reading papers and getting drunk. Well, and he's like, okay, think maybe, move along, sir. Maybe you could change the conference so that all the scholars showed up like dressed like monks and with chain mails. Like, I think that would be really cool. <laughs> well, it's, it's great because it's the Societas Magica, right? Uh-huh. So they're like, they write a lot of the the books that are say in the magic and history series. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're a great crowd and, and it's nice to just like every year consistently, everybody, all the scholars in that group get together and do panels and present, present what they've been doing every year. And so you, you get a really uh, solid sense of the scholarly community. And that's why I've been trying to like link up this side with the European side, because mm-hmm. The European side is kind of like doing its own thing. And then like the Societas Magica people seem to be doing their own thing. I mean, I don't know all of their individual uh, paths or wills or whatever. Mm-hmm. But from what I've noticed, like in terms of reading citations in bibliographies and stuff like that, there's not as much um, crossover in the North American and European scholarship world. So I would like to see that bridged. Yeah, I would too. I feel like I get a lot more... Uh, like, I think most of the books I have are, are from, like, University of Amsterdam type people, you know, like Hanukkah yeah, exactly. and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, and that stuff's awesome. Like, it is awesome. Yeah, I, I love Hanegraaff. He's – I've never met, met him in person, but I imagine that he's sort of, like, really grumpy. Yeah, I think that's a shtick. Um, yeah. That's just, like, the continental scholar shtick. Yeah, you're a professional. You're paid to be, like – austere and have autoritas and uh-huh. like and like the more you exude that the more you excel in that world you've got to have and like so, a tweed jacket and reading glasses that you wear down on the end of your nose yeah, yeah exactly totally and, and whereas like here it's like it's a different ball game like mm-hmm. it's all about just like nice and being cordial and friendly and like yes being right but also like mainly only in your publications uh-huh. <laughs> like nobody wants to hear you berate people at conference not that i'm saying these people do that either mm-hmm. but um th- there's a definitely like a different climate uh of of attitudes from from the european scene to the mm-hmm. north american scene well i just want you to promise that you are going to make a ton of noise on the internet once the picatrix comes out so that i will everybody knows I mean, I, and this is part of it right mm-hmm. like i'm i've been i've gotten i think like six or seven podcast requests. So I started with yours because you asked me first. Oh, great. So I've just been, I've just, I'm like, okay, I've got to start like dealing with this pile of requests. Mm -hmm. And, and this is my equivalent of, you know, starting buzz or whatever the marketing term for it is. Oh yeah. Yeah. I totally understand. Um, and you know, I'm, I mean, I'm glad that we spent all this time talking about the pick tricks, but there's, there's a ton of stuff that we could talk about again. So I'll probably bug you, in a few months get you on the podcast again so we could dig into some of your other things uh but for now let's just why don't you tell everybody where they can find you on the internet all right so uh on youtube it's uh youtube.com slash the modern hermeticist and you know no spaces Mm -hmm. and on twitter it's twitter.com slash modern hermetics okay um at the time the modern hermeticist didn't fit uh-huh. and um <laughs> and, and the modern hermeticist.com as well is kind of my website great okay i'll uh, i'll put links to all that stuff in the show notes and uh and then we're my alchemical bromance at myalchemicalbromance.com and you can find us on stitcher and itunes and all that stuff so thank you very much dan uh go forth and hermeticize yes thank you eric you as well My Alchemical Bromance is sponsored by Miskatonic Books. Miskatonic Books is an online bookstore that focuses on rare, limited edition, and custom-made books of the highest quality. 
They specialize in books on the occult, ceremonial magic, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, Hermeticism, and other topics of interest to you, our listeners. Check them out on the web at miskatonicbooks.com. Yeah. Uh-huh. 